Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Monday, June 7th, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show is patience, advocacy, and support for young adults. In our survivor spotlight, Jason Varun is young adult survivor of brain cancer. <clears throat> Aaron Moratti, the chief of external communications at the Patient Advocate Foundation. And Dr. Mitch Gallant, the senior vice president of research and training at the Cancer Support Community. As a reminder, this broadcast is a program of the I Am Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, who would like to thank our major sponsors for making the show possible like Spencer's Gifts, Azi, Genentech, and Lily Oncology. On the web at i2y.com, we help young adults fight cancer every day. And we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs. Why? Because our generation deserves better. That's why. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun-filled and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure, and survivorship is all that matters. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Broadcasting live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan, I am Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. Please welcome back, after a two-week hiatus on vacation, my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from right here in New York City, a 15-year Young adult breast cancer survivor, acclaimed journalist, former deputy editor of TV Guide, and former entertainment news correspondent for the Fox News Channel, the lovely and talented and hopefully well-rested and tanned Lisa Bernhardt. I am so happy to be back. We, I am, I am well-rested, although you, I wore 45 sunscreen protection. Were you, are you like all oil slicked up? Were you in the Gulf by any chance? <laughs> oh, God. Okay, way, way to take a nice vacation and turn it into one of the most abysmal uh, news uh, uh, facets of current events to happen to all I of us. I wonder what SPF BP is. Yeah, <laughs> not enough protection. Not a, yeah, uh, right. pretty well, scary stuff. No, I was uh, yeah, I was uh, down in the uh, British Virgin Islands. 
on a catamaran for eight days, and I was um, untethered, shockingly, to any Facebook, Twitter, any emotional uh, <laughs> emotional gadget, <laughs> sort of like emotional crutch, um, any mechanical uh, digital gadget, cell phone, and even a newspaper. had no idea. I was totally disconnected. A bunch of tropical fish, coral, a couple of books, some food and some booze. I, I was going to say, screen. speaking of an emotional gadget, I wanted to introduce our chief cancer anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Vice President of Grassroots Programming, Jack Buffard. Hi, Jack. Hi. Hi, Jack. Hi, Lisa. So were you using SPF 45 because of your age? Like, should I be using SPF, <laughs> should I be using SPF 26? Yeah, you uh, wish you were SPF 26. Did I say it was great to be back? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say yeah. it. That was Jack. I did. I did. Um, I, I actually. I, I have to uh, come clean here and say that I risked it. I went. I did go for the last couple of days as low as 15. But I don't advise that kids out there. Um, but it was only after I had gone 45 for uh, the first few days, and that was it, just to get a, a touch, a touch of color. But um, yeah, that's funny, Jack. Thanks a lot. Could you just imagine a world where you had to wear the SPF of your age? Yeah. You can? You can imagine that world? Well, so I was saying, like, yes, that's weird. Like, I was thinking of your of your twins. You know, they SPF would, five weeks? They'd be wearing yeah. SPF .5. You know what's interesting, though, because I actually had not, this is fascinating to admit here, I had not bought suntan lotion in a while, and I remember being a kid, before any of us were concerned about any of this, you know, when we wore baby oil out in the sun, or at least I did foolishly, you'd go and get Band of Soleil or whatever it was, and you'd, you know, there'd be two, four, six, eight, all the way now, there's nothing below 15. Right. You know, there's, there's 70 and 75 and, you know, 100 and all these numbers, which I, I don't know if it makes any difference. They, usually they say 15 or 30, and then it's all the same after that. But there are these crazy numbers, you know, and they just, I don't even think they make 8 or 10 or anything like that anymore. I remember those commercials. Band is so late. For the Saint-Tropez Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Bad stuff. Yeah. What? Anyway, Jack, this is before your time, Jack. You're only a year younger yeah. than me. Yeah. Well, you know, I was going to say, uh, you know, our, our, our pal Kenny Kane, who's like the gingerish, redheaded Irish kid or whatever, yeah. when he goes out in the sun, his mom makes him wear a burka and sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't even know if that's nice or not. Anyway, yeah, Jack, Jack's going to be monitoring our live interactive current chat room. And, uh,. If anyone has any questions for our guests as they come up, please ask them that. Uh, we'll do our best to get them answered. Uh, Amanda Freeman could not join us here in studio tonight, our fabulous broadcast production assistant. She is finishing up her finals. Yeah, she's, a, like, really smart or something, she's right? She's crazy yeah. smart. She just took her statistics final for her senior year in grad school. Is that, like, baseball batting averages? It's exactly stuff? the opposite yeah. of that, yes, yes. And uh, and then she's taking her chemistry final on on Thursday, uh, so she'll be back with us next Monday. So we wish her good luck uh, with all our finals. We have a fabulous brand-new I2Wire uh, here in studio tonight. I met her through, um, I think it was email. You sent me a quick email yeah. introducing yourself. Uh, her name is Nicole Martin. She comes from Woodstock, New York. She right. is currently in treatment for leukemia at Memorial Sloan Kettering and staying at the Hope Lodge here in New York City. And she is going to be one of our, angels, one of our many dozens of angel sponsors on scholarship to come to the Ungala on Thursday. Hello, Nicole. Hi, how are you guys? How are you nice. doing? I'm good. So um, I was diagnosed with leukemia in uh, August 2009, and I just had a bone marrow transplant, uh, umbilical cord actually, stem cell, and um, 
almost 100 days post-transplant, and I found out about you guys, and I think it's really cool what your organization does. See, we get them drinking the Kool-Aid really early on, and that's how we that's how we roll. Well, and fantastic, and thank you to everybody who uh, not only bought tickets for the Young Gala on Thursday, but who bought angel tickets to allow uh, folks like Nicole to come, which is absolutely fantastic. So we are so appreciative to all our angel ticket buyers out there. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, like she told me that this, this, this goes back to a larger philosophical conversation about where I to Y lives and the cultural consciousness of this country. She told me that she was told about our – oh, why don't you tell the story? Um, the, the W women or something? Yeah, the W girls. They're a whole bunch of young professional women who started um, their organization by just being drinking or getting together. Yeah, that's how we started our organization. <laughs> yeah. We just moved um, it up. Um, they just got together and – when tsunami happened, they started fun doing fundraising, and one of the women came to the uh, they came to the Hope Lodge and cooked us dinner actually. And one of the women sent me an email about the Angala show, and that's how I found out about the Stupid Cancer show. So I managed to find this woman, Megan, on on Facebook. Uh, we have no friends in common. She's not a member of the New York City regional chapter. She's not a, a member of the um, the fan page or the uh, the cause page. I have no idea how she knows about us, but I think it's a testament to we're out there somehow and that this young woman who's part of this amazing organization that apparently raises money and awareness for charities, and I hope we're next, knows about the Ungala. Her network knows about the Ungala, and they were at Hope Lodge and took the time <clears throat> to let Nicole know about this event Thursday, and that she wrote me that she's inpatient, she's here in the city, and she is a perfect candidate for an angel scholarship. So I think that's a testament to everyone out there for helping to spread the word uh, of stupid cancer. And uh, if there's anyone listening tonight that had anything to do with that, I thank you without knowing who you are. But, again, this goes back to who we are. So you are, you said you're a poet? Oh, Yeah. I write. I like to write lyrics and poetry. Do you have something that you'd like to talk to us about tonight or read for us tonight? Sure. Um, Not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> Hold on. <clears throat> have you been writing your whole life? Yeah. It just helps channel some stuff out, you know? That's exactly. How, how, how old are you again, Nicole? I'm 23. 23. Okay. She uses SPF 23 when she goes outside. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough, I suppose. So what's the name of the piece you'll be reading? Um, this is my story. It's called AML because I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. Um, but I put it AML stands for amazing lady. I nice. can go with that. So um, this is my poem. I wrote this while I was in the hospital. April 5th, I was uh, put in February 29th. Okay. AML, acute myeloid leukemia, is what they told me I had when I was in need of you. Long, beautiful, pregnant hair, cut bald, but I really didn't care. It wasn't the cancer that bothered me. It was how they violated my body and took my baby. Cancer doesn't scare me, doesn't till, doesn't till this day. Somehow I know I'll always be okay. They told me I was going to need a bone marrow transplant. That's when I was unsure of how to handle it. A lot of information in a short period of time. 
a lot of decisions racking my mind. I had to put my life in these doctors' hands. Time was so short, did as much research as I can. Doctors' appointments for a whole month straight, hormone shots to harvest my eggs. Probably going to menopause after the procedure at the age of 23. 95% chance I won't be able to conceive naturally. Time getting shorter, my life took a turn and got hectic. But what could I do except accept it? Laid up in the hospital for about seven weeks. Found myself in the Lord and never got weak. Up and down, days good and bad. But it was all good because of the Lord I have. To all the people that stay by me faithfully, nothing but love and you'll get paid back gratefully. I'm still in here, but I'm on my way out. Full recovery, no doubt. AML, I think, stands for Amazing Lady. Stem cells that saved my life came from a baby. Amazing how the Lord works, my baby couldn't stay, but the one who did saved my life today. Wow. That is some potent, wow. potent stuff right That's there. That's like a little cancer eight mile we got going on here. <laughs> oh, it's just like, you know, Deaf Poetry Slam, Russell Simmons, or uh, That is Jay-Z. some crazy, is, crazy, powerful stuff. Wow. That was awesome, Nicole. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, if this is your first entry point into this organization, there's nowhere to go but up, or down yeah. for that matter. <laughs> that was about as good as it gets. Yeah, bring it down to my level sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring some watercolors and crayons. Like, <laughs> as long as they're numbered, because I can't paint without the numbers to assist Yeah, me. let's not taint this poor girl yet. No, that no, was no. amazing, Nicole. We'll, we'll ruin you in about three months or so. <laughs> yeah, run while you can. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so I want to get to our um, our official Survivor Spotlight tonight. He's a great guy. I've known him for a very long time now. And uh, let me just cue some music here and introduce him. What time is it? 9.14. Oh, no, it's 9.14. Anyway, it is late. Jason Varunas is a 22-year-old survivor of medulloblastoma, which is what I had. He was diagnosed in 1994, two years before me, at the age of six. Sixteen stupid cancer years later, he's still kicking the crap out of cancer. Now he's a senior at Drexel in Philly. He's studying towards shut up. He's studying towards his degree in civil engineering with a minor in music performance. And when he doesn't have his book in his face and isn't jamming out on drums, he spends his time volunteering and advocating for I2Y. He is the I2Y Eastern Pennsylvania co-founder and local chair of that chapter and is a fellow survivor, a fellow musician, and co-founder for I2Y. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jason Veronis. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. You know, I've been involved with I2Y for so long. This is my first time on the show. I'm, I'm sorry, really excited. Are, are we talking to you? <laughs> I'm really happy to have you here. It's long overdue, my friend. Long overdue. I was going to say this guy. You know, I know you just had twins, Matthew, and you have a, a, a baby son. But from his description, he sounds like your son. Musician, same diagnosis. I know. I mean, diagnosed he, in the '90s, Clinton. Uh, Clinton diagnosis. <laughs> or he's your mini me. Oh, my son. Oh God. No, you know my 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 five week old son is looking less like me, more like my father. So I'm concerned. Actually, it'd be the other way around. I've got you beat by a year. That's true. That is true. That is true. So, medulloblastoma at age six. Interesting because I had medulloblastoma at age 21, and they told me it didn't happen in people over the age of 14. 
I assume you were with your parents. You were six six years old. Is like you're just in kindergarten. Is that right? Yeah, I was on the bus to kindergarten, and uh, the tumor was growing so close to a blood vessel that it burst it while I was on the bus. Well, that's not good. Well, at least we found it. <laughs> I mean, well, what if we didn't? That's true. So, knock on wood there. So, obviously, this was discovered right away? Oh, immediately. Um, I had been having migraines for three years, but so was my mother, so they didn't really think anything about it. Uh, another one of those late false diagnosis stories that we hear so much about. Do you, and you remember having migraines, Jason, at, from age three to six? Barely. There's not much I remember from yeah. that time. Um such is the case with a lot of kids who were diagnosed at a younger age. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's a good thing and a bad thing. So, I mean, it, 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 I think what, what is really unique about your story with regard to our show and our audience is that you are now in your 20s. You are alive. You are doing very well. But you have transitioned out of pediatrics. And and just to finish up that line of thought, can you talk a little little bit about what that transition was like for you and what you might know that transition to be like for others who are cuddled and coddled and catered to while they are in the pediatric setting, which has seen tremendous improvements in survival rates and quality of life, but then you're boom, out, you don't fit in anymore, and you're at that what's next part of your life. Well, one of the biggest transitions, and, and this is what I tell uh, children and, and parents of children uh, who, who are going through treatment and who are just finishing treatment, is that when you're a kid and you go through something like that, it's not what kids were meant to go through at that age, to experience death so closely, to go through those things. And when you come out at the other end, it's almost like you, have, you go through a generation gap. And the psychologists uh, at the hospital told my parents that your son functions as if he's seven years older than he really is. He talks that way, he functions that way, and the best way they found to adapt to that was to treat me like I was someone older. And uh, I guess how that got into me transitioning to adult care is that since they started to treat me like an adult, they started to move me into that adult stage of care early on, before I actually turned 18. So that by the time I turned 18 and I left for college and it was time to leave the nest and fly, I knew most of my medical history and I knew pretty much how to handle myself. And um, this is what doctors have learned to do and to tell parents is that your child will be able to understand more since he's been through this. So try and move him as he gets older to try and take care of him or herself. So interesting, Jason. So psychologically, your treatment was one more of an adult. You face an adult situation. So they sort of, could you explain how they, was it just in the way they spoke to you? Did you have special counseling sessions where you derailed out of school for a long period of time? But they, sort of everything that you went through, they kind of dealt with you and spoke to you as if you were almost in your adolescence or, or as a young adult? Well, in the early and mid-90s, they didn't know how to treat children like they do today. So it was all guesswork. They didn't really know what to do. Um, I, was, I, I was a part of a major clinical trial 
as well as a, a psychological clini clinical trial uh, as my generation was the first generation at that age to really start surviving 10, 15 years after diagnosis. So one of the things they tried with me on a psychological level that actually worked was to treat the kid like an adult. Yeah. Were you were you introduced to other children your age? I know I know that in pediatrics, you know, one of the things that makes pediatric cancer very unique is that it is sort of a very closed system of best practices and standards of care that has evolved over the last 20 or 30 years since the children's oncology group set its baseline uh, for all that. But and, and and they try to make it as comfortable and as easy for you to network with other children in their in their single digits or their teen years, did you find that they were as attentive to your quality of life as well as the interest in your quantity of life? Uh, they were attentive, but not as successful as they could have been, like I said, because it was all guesswork. Back then, they were learning how to treat children going through cancer. They weren't treating children going through cancer. So a lot of it was trial and error. Um, the neuro-oncology, pediatric neuro-oncology was an entire floor in itself on the hospital. Only brain tumors and only children. And where were you treated? Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Right, right, right. So one of the best moves they made was to isolate based on diagnosis because those kids would exhibit similar symptoms. They would go through similar things. And one of the obvious first things they found is that uh, children who went through similar things should be put together because even at a younger level where maybe you haven't developed all those social skills, to go through something with somebody else your age makes a big difference, even to a child. Even to a child. Agreed. Agreed. Lisa, do you have anything? Well, I'm just curious. So now at this, um, what's your... What, what's the state of your health? What's what are you? Um, you're continually, obviously, you go for yearly scans, and what, what was the last um, moment of treatment that you had, and, and uh, bring us kind of more up to speed on uh, on your life now. Uh, well, uh, it was a long road. Um, psychosocial was was a whole uh, adventure in itself. I didn't really come out at the other end until after middle school at 13. That's when I started to get involved with advocacy. Um, one of the things you have to realize with uh, children who are diagnosed at such a delicate social age where they're learning how to make friends, they're learning how to survive socially, is that, and for anyone for that matter, is, is you don't just bounce right back and decide to talk about your story and, and advocate and everything. It's, it takes a personal journey, and uh, I took one of those as well. Um, on, on the physical end, um, I dealt with so many late effects. I actually... Uh, needed back surgery when I was 13, and this was seven years after my diagnosis. Back then, they didn't know how to screen someone. They didn't know that there were such thing as late effects. They didn't know any of this. So I was done with treatment, and they said, so long, have a nice life. No follow-up, no nothing. Well, that goes back to my the when the doctor says you're cured, go home. That's not the end of the story. And, and even though I was treated at 21 years old in pediatrics, they still told me that. They said, go home, get on with your life. And I'd like to think I came out as unscathed as possible. 
I, I know medulloblastoma is a very unique brain tumor that is that it is not specifically in your cerebellum. So resection and treatment don't typically give you the same uh, side effects or cognitive deficits or behavioral challenges that may come with, uh, you know, uh, treatments that affect that part of your brain, although it does still produce significant late effects, um, which I deal with, Jason deals with. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any brain tumor survivor of any age that doesn't have something wrong with them as a result of not dying from cancer. Uh, but again, I think that moves the conversation in the right direction towards this show about patient advocacy. Uh, what have you done in the wake of your being here today to help the next six-year-old diagnosed with medulloblastoma transition out of pediatrics and become an I2Wire and become an empowered young adult survivor? Uh, well, um, you have to talk to the parents because... Uh, First of all, it, it, the hospital won't let me speak to children directly uh, unless, you know, you have to have credentials or you have to be a licensed social worker or whatnot. Um, so most of the time I'm talking to the parents. And they don't like to tell me here that they don't like me to, they don't like to hear me tell them how to treat their kid or anything like that. That's not, that's not what I'm out there to do. Um, they're having trouble understanding what their kid is going through. As a parent, I'm not a parent. You are a new parent, Zach, so I guess you could understand how it feels to know that you don't know what your child is experiencing, and you want to help them, but you don't know how. Well, I know that they're experiencing duty a lot. (laughs) (laughs) See, I would think that a parent would want a survivor like you to say, like, you know, I, I went through something similar as your child, and this is what I felt when I went through it. I well, think, well, go ahead, Jason. I'm sorry. It 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 takes a lot of it takes some some cajoling sometimes. Sometimes the parents are a little bit tired of hearing it. They they just want to escape for a while, and when another survivor shows up, that makes them think of their own kid who's sick. And uh, I can't blame them for feeling. But wouldn't it give them hope to say like, hey, you know, this guy made it. You know, maybe mine can too. Right. Uh, for a parent, I guess it's even worse than the kid. The kid, at least, you know, there's a lot. He, there's a lot going on. He doesn't understand. There's a lot going on going on that's over his head, which makes it easier for him to go through it. For the parents, though, they are experiencing everything, and I can't imagine the mix and wild flaring of emotions that's going through their head. And uh, so I don't, I don't get upset when they, you know, I get lashed upon. And Jason, could you just back up for a moment to what you said before, just so folks understand? You stopped your treatment, but then years out, you said you had back surgery. Why did you need the back surgery? Um, because of the location of my tumor, um, the brain and the spine were like a closed circuit. So if it was going to metastasize, it would spread to my spine. So okay. I had to get full cranial and spinal radiation. And the biggest problem for uh treating kids back then is that they didn't tone down the radiation for children like they do today and I still got the full-blown uh, protocol that an adult would receive. Do you remember your, your dosage? Uh, 2350. Beat you. 5940. <laughs> ah, well I had I had 6,000 boost area to the posterior fossa. Yeah, I had that too. Oh, uh, okay. 
Well, you got me on the I radio. win. I win on the I'm radioactive man. <laughs> what is this, like cancer bingo or something? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I was also older. I know, I know, and but that's a very important point about advocacy as well, is that there really are new standards today that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago, even 20 years ago, about how to treat children with, with basic protocols. They don't even radiate anymore. They basically have these um, lower toxicity cocktails of chemotherapy, which are made for adults because there really are no drugs made for pediatrics. They have to sort of adapt and canoodle them to, to, to work for children. But, yeah, I got the same dose of radiation. Granted, I was older that you got, just a little more of it, and it's six. Yeah, I was in I was in Children's Hospital a couple of weeks ago getting my, my bi-yearly or every other yearly MRI, and I was talking to a couple of the other parents there about their kids' diagnosis and their treatments, and they were, radiation? No, God, no, they don't give us radiation. Right, right, like where the pariahs now. <laughs> yeah. And, and, again, it also goes back to this idea of that, you know, because they don't give those treatments anymore, there's no real standards for what we have to deal with as long-term survivors. Yeah, so we're just the guinea pigs, and, yes. you know, the failed experiments get thrown into the well. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Well, you're here, you're here in studio. Obviously, uh, you can chime in any time when we start talking to our guests because you're a great case study for this whole idea of that, you know, of the 1.4 million young adults w who are cancer survivors in this country, over 330,000 are like Jason who were diagnosed under the age of 15 and are now over the age of 20. So there's a huge population of people for whom that transition was not nearly where we'd liked it to have been, and there's a lot of work to be done. So let's break for the news for a minute. Let's give Jack's Corner some stuff, and uh, then we'll hit up our guests. Can I interject something about Mr. Veronis over here real quick? Sure. Um, you know, in 2008, when I was in treatment, I went to the Ungala, which is the event that we're having uh, this Thursday. Right. But the <clears> second <throat> Ungala was my first Ungala, and I went with my dad, and I had just finished my treatment like three weeks ago, and Jason Veronis was the first person that I met at the Ungala that night. I did not know that. Yep. And in fact... And you came back. I am posting a picture of us in the chat room right now. Really? You found it? Cool. Yes. Yeah. Jason, did you know that, Jason? Uh, now that he mentions it, I, I do remember that. Yeah. Look and, at that. And one of the other things, and... and uh, that, that I remember from that night, and just hearing Jason talk about what he went through, uh, like totally re reminded me of it. But we were having this conversation about what I went through and you know his story and stuff. And he asked me, you know, what what my regiment was and what drugs I was on. And I couldn't really remember all of them because I was of the mindset of I'll just go to the doctor when they tell me to go, and I put my life in his hands. I was like, you know, I don't need to know what you're doing. Just save my life. And Jason was like, Oh no, not me. He's like. I, I Googled every drug that I was on. I needed to know, like, every single thing that was going on with my treatment. And it's just, you know, an example of how people take their, their diagnosis and, uh, you know, either run with it or just take the hands-off approach. It's like, okay, doc, I'm in your hands. My parents, my parents would quiz me on my <laughs> diagnosis and my drugs when I was, like, eight years old and I was still going through treatment. Yeah. You're probably a great Scrabble player because of it, too. <laughs> <laughs> he counts cards also, I hear. Well, anyway, um, I'm going to try... We're going to try something new here tonight. we got a lot of news to read. 
Um, but I, I know Jack wants to take a different spin on um, on his little segment here on the show. So what do you got for us, Dr. Buford? Well, I got a couple things. First of all is an announcement regarding our BFFs over at First Ascent. Their programs are completely full and booked, and they actually have waiting lists for all of their camps. That's good news and bad news. That's good news for, uh, for them and for us because we promote them and we see the value that they provide the young adult cancer community. It's bad news for those people who wanted to go this year and didn't apply in time. So I would suggest for everybody who wants to take a first descent to uh, definitely keep tabs on this radio show and everything that we do on Facebook and Twitter and everything like that. And uh, definitely keep an eye out and an ear open for the 2011 calendar. But there is a waiting list. So if you feel that, you know, luck is on your side and you think you can make a camp, then certainly contact First Ascent and see if you could, uh, you know, get in on that. Hey, Jack, just in case we have any first-time listeners, because you've been to First Descent, can you just give a quick thumbnail of who they are and what exactly they do? Yeah. Uh, they they are a, a retreat-slash-excursion uh uh, organization for young adult cancer survivors, founded by professional kayaker Brad Ludden, who was at uh, the OMG conference and on the survivor panel with me. And basically, they give survivors uh, a week in the woods or in the mountains or whatever, either kayaking or rock climbing or both. And it's a phenomenal opportunity to see a different part of the country. They really help you with the basics of rock climbing and kayaking, so you don't have to worry about, like, oh, my God, I can't swim, or I'm never going to be able to paddle my kayak or whatever. Uh, they're also very in touch with your your needs as a survivor, so if you feel like your energy is low and you can't handle a certain activity, they understand, and you can either sit it out or ride in the safety raft. Um, they won't let you drown because... <laughs> it wouldn't be. It, it wouldn't look good that for them be if, if, yeah. if, if you beat cancer and then drowned at first ascent yeah. three three months later. Awkward. Can't be clo- can't be, yeah. Can't be closed the next day. Right. Yeah, but they do have like the ratio between counselors and professional kayakers and the campers is like you know usually one to one or two to one or even three to one in some situations. So what about the ratio between males and females? That's an excellent <laughs> point, and I'm glad you brought it up. Because they're always looking for more guys to attend first ascent. Is that is that right? So it's a hookup opportunity. <laughs> yeah, if, if that's your thing. But uh, <laughs> what happens in the woods stays in the woods. Exactly. Right. Or in the river. But uh, <laughs> but it's true. It's true. They they actually have. I I don't know what the stats are, but it's probably like eighty percent women to twenty percent men that participate in this. And the theory wow. behind the theory behind that is that women actually are more proactive in seeking uh, activities and support and such, whereas guys will either just let it come to them right. or have to be talked into it. And you, and you would think it would be the opposite, being that this is like an adventure situation where guys men, would be all gung-ho. Men, men, right. men, You know, it's like men, where you can go men, out into the men. woods and scratch your crotch and pee in the river. But <laughs> apparently there's more women... You don't need to go to First Ascent to do that, Jack. You know that, right? No, I live in Connecticut. I could do that in my front yard. <laughs> Except the one time the mailman caught me. That was kind of weird. <laughs> That's not good. That's interesting. What, what's the male-to-female ratio of I-2 wires? It's, Let's we, find out at the Young Gala Thursday. No, we're, we're even. We're, we're 55-45 female. And we do have 45-year-old females. <laughs> we oh, no. God <laughs> damn it. He went there. So. 
All so, right. uh, all right. What else you got for us? I'm going to get you some SPF 46 for uh, <laughs> for your birthday. <laughs> oh, no. And then the other the other thing I want to mention is uh, can't make a dream. I just want to wish them luck because they're starting their young adult conference tomorrow, which is like first essential without the kayaks. Yeah, without yeah. the activities, you can like be as lazy as you want. Oh, plus the chocolate factory. Yes, the, the chocolate factory, and and it's in Montana, so it's like getting the hell out of. If Lisa thinks she was nowhere. With no access to technology, go to Montana anytime soon. Yeah, but your phone works there. I like to. The phones work. But they have Wi-Fi on yeah. the campus now, I hear. Yeah, they do. Um, but, yeah, so uh, Camp Make a Dream's website is campdream.org. And uh, for anybody who's looking for a retreat and a getaway to Gold Creek, Montana, it's a phenomenal time. It's a great way to make friends. And uh, it's completely free, as is the first ascent. So um, those are the two plugs I want to give. All right, well... Uh, and we have to send a special shout-out to Ann Kramer, too. Yes, Ann Kramer uh, is one of our groupies in the chat room every week. She couldn't be with us tonight because I believe she's having a procedure. So we're sending her good karma, and she's going to be fine, but uh, she gets props tonight. This is not to say that no one deserves all the props every show. Uh, we don't want to disenfranchise people, but props to everyone. But Ann specifically asked us to give her some cred. And, uh, all right, Ann. So she, she came all bald and fabulous to the OMG Summit, which for our new listeners is our international annual conference. Um, but, uh, yeah, go Ann from Michigan. And, and real quick, there's three birthdays that are of significance today. One of them is Doug Allman, who's the CEO of the Livestrong Foundation. Happy birthday, Doug Allman. And the founder of uh, the Allman Fund. And Candace Henley's birthday is today. And she is Miss June in the Cohen Club's Colander. Oh, wow. So I want to send a birthday shout-out to Candace, and I also want to send a shout-out to my friend Kate Kucharski from Milwaukee, who I met at the YSC conference in Atlanta. Well, there you go. So that's like three significant, cancer, well, significant to me cancer birthdays today. So It's not a tumor. All right, on that note, let's bring out our first guest tonight. Well, our second guest, actually. All righty. Well, who's Aaron, What? Can I introduce her? Yeah, Lisa, stay out of it. <laughs> Aaron Morata is the Chief of External Communications with over 12 years of experience with the Patient Advocate Foundation. She is responsible for the coordination of all media inquiries and policy legislative requests providing information on trends on various healthcare-related issues to the leadership team, scientific board, and legislative departments of the organization. She serves on the Patient Advocate Foundation Public Publications Committee, co-authoring several publications. This is a fantastic organization that I've known for at least eight years now, and I am thrilled to have her on this show. Please welcome Erin Moratti. Erin. Hello there. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. I've known Nancy for eight years now, and uh, I met her in like 2002 when I was at a National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship event in D.C. So this is a long time brewing to have you guys on the show. I'm thrilled. And if I could just kick off the first question, which is that the word advocacy means different things to different people. And for me, my definition is that you want to make sure that the next you doesn't have to go through the same crap that you went through. So... I would like to have our listeners understand the history behind the Patient Advocate Foundation, why it is so clearly needed in our country, and uh, sort of what your top-line 
triage tends to look like on a daily basis? Absolutely. Um, Patient Advocate Foundation was founded in 1996. Um, it was after Nancy Davenport Ennis um, went through a battle with a close friend of hers. Cheryl Grimlin was not able to access the treatment needed. Um, her insurance company refused to pay for um, transplant at the time for breast cancer, and she went to bat and decided to help with fundraising. And after Cheryl passed, it was determined that you know, she didn't want anyone else to have to experience the difficulties that she did to try to access the necessary care. So she founded Patient Advocate Foundation as well as National Patient Advocate Foundation at the same time. And through professional uh, patient navigators, we help hundreds of patients a day access prescribed health care, obtain relief from the medical debt, and maintain their jobs at the time of during crisis. Um, we found that not only do you have normally insurance issues that can arise, but oftentimes you have medical debt crisis and you also have job concerns that are associated. And so we felt that the, the need for Patient Advocate Foundation to be national and focus on those with life-threatening and chronic debilitating diseases, in addition to the three major buckets of issues that people often face was important to have for those in need. And Erin, so do you have uh, your national organization, do folks contact you through the website? Just talk about the nuts and bolts about how, sure. what kind of contact people have with you via the phone, the Internet. Um, is there anybody locally they can deal with? How does that all work? We're based out of Hampton, Virginia. Um, we do have some satellite locations strategically placed throughout the country. We have a San Diego office that helps us keep our hours open from 8 to 8 Eastern Standard Time. Um, all of our, most of our um, work is telephonic. Um, we have an 800 number, it's 800-532-5274, um, and once a caller actually calls us, they'll speak to a medical intake specialist who does a live intake, and at that time, um, we determine who the specialist or case manager best suited to handle that case, and they're referred to that individual for the, to maintain the relationship throughout the resolution of their case. We also have, um, we have email um, help at patientadvocate.org where you can contact us that way and we also have live chats um, throughout the day that allows you the ability to ask quick questions. We have a lot of professionals that utilize that service um, as well and we offer webinars and if you check our, our website which is patientadvocate.org you actually can look at the web webinars that we offer for you know more in, uh, group topics but for one-on-one -on -one case management, negotiation, mediation, and arbitration services, your best course is to call our toll-free number or actually email us. Okay. And all, are your services free of charge? Or is there our charge services are all free of cost. Yep. There's no charge associated to the services we provide. Do you find and that you get to drum up a lot of business because this country sucks when it comes to health care and insurance? <laughs> well, we find that there's a lot of need out there for our services, and we find that, you know, um, it, oftentimes when one is diagnosed with an illness, they just there's a lack of understanding what benefits they might carry. They might have never had to actually review their plan or have a, ever experienced to put a preauthorization or once they have a large out-of-pocket cost, don't really understand that that was something that might be accumulating quite quickly. And so we find that a lot of callers contact us once that they do become sick, unfortunately, because the needs are so great. Looking over some of the uh, notes that I know that you you guys sent in um, that you sent in about the organization, it looks like in recent years, and I guess one huge factor would be the economy and folks losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, 
that it looks like your numbers have really kind of gone off the charts here in terms of the amount of folks that you're helping um, that, that, that need assistance. Um, and I guess because it would be because they are unemployed or uninsured and also you're dealing with more critical care illnesses, is that correct? Yeah, and what we've noticed is that obviously we spend a lot of time with outreach and, and educating on the services we provide, but of course we do believe that a lot of the, the economy and just some of the um, shifts that have occurred in some of the healthcare systems, um, trying, if employers are trying to maintain their insurance, they might have um, had to cut back on some of the insurance that coverage that they might have offered, and I think it, it kind of um, loops around that way. And we saw uh, last in 2008, we saw about 48,000 patients, and this and in 2009, we were more at 55,000. So um, the need is is continuously growing, and that's the the trend that we've been seeing since '96. On a personal account, uh, I'd just like to thank you, Erin, uh, and the Patient Advocate Foundation for making a uh, significant contribution to my college education with the Patient Advocate uh, Foundation scholarship that I won a couple of years ago. Oh, look at that. Wow. Oh, thank you. You're hired, Jason. <laughs> Wait, didn't you put that money towards your meal plan? <laughs> And that's a wonderful benefit that Nancy wanted to establish at the beginning as well. And we have uh, college scholarships that individuals can apply for that have experienced cancer diagnoses themselves. So it's a great addition to the programs that we offer. So going forward, you um, has your organization, I guess, officially uh, backed healthcare reform, or how does uh, talk talk to us a little bit about that and how you see it affecting what you do? Well. Um, our sister organization, National Patient Advocate Foundation, is really our policy arm to the Patient Advocate Foundation. And Nancy had um, formed both of them in 1996 together, understanding that you know every day we resolve issues and we try to take every case and resolve them individually, and everyone has unique challenges. But understanding also that a lot of them um, have very mirrored issues that are associated in. So National Patient Advocate Foundation takes a lot of our statistics and patient stories, and they go to the to make policy reform. And so they've been really instrumental in trying to support some of those um, issues that have arisen. And since, for example, in 2006, we were providing data to support the need for elimination of pre-existing conditions. So that was a really good. Um, when we saw the outcome of that, we were really happy with with the with that outcome. And I do know that they stay focused on looking at you know, reform and making sure that the decisions being made are the best for everyone nationally. Right. So our um, and National Patient Advocate Foundation's website is www.npaf.org, and they have a lot of information and really understanding some of the overview of the early insurance health care reforms and some of what's going to happen later down the road because obviously reform is tiered and in, in, in which when things are going to start changing. Uh, Aaron, do you see a pattern um, where you're getting more young adults than before, or have you been able to sort of gauge the population science or the demographics of who traditionally comes to you? And the reason I ask that, obviously, is because the largest issue uh, in the young adult cancer community is specifically that we're under or uninsured um, and that, you know, we don't typically have the means to deal with a situation that's perhaps maturely with the experience of years than someone who would call you that are in their 50s, 60s. Uh, have you seen an increase in that um, in, in recent years? Well, we've actually 
been strategic in some of the things that we've been doing to try to reach out to the, the population, understanding that it's important to reach the high school graduates and the college um, graduates. And we've written some publications around that, you know, too young to be ill. We want uh, to understand the importance of maintaining insurance and some of the things that one might face if they're diagnosed. We also have a partnership with Lance Armstrong Foundation that does generate a lot of phone calls and referrals to us that are of the younger age group. And we find um, that they, and that's when you mentioned earlier how we communicate, uh, the different populations uh, prefer different methods and, and Internet access or email conversation has been um, something to help with that increase as well. And um, we talk a lot to not only the patients themselves but the family members or the providers. And sometimes it's actually the family members that might, we might be relaying the message to for someone who's on the younger age group. Well, there you go. Um, I guess, Lisa, have any, I have a question, but Lisa, I'll give it to, to you. No, that's fine. I was wondering if we were had to uh, bring in uh, bring in Mitch, but you shoot, Matt. Yeah, I just have I have one last question, which is um, it, it's a big question, <clears throat> but it has to do with you know this notion of uh, you know the insurance companies for young adults now can't discriminate against you for having pre-existing condition. So, what, of course, what they're doing is they're coming up with all these loopholes to get around that. Well, they'll kick you off your insurance for something that has nothing to do with a pre-existing condition, but the ulterior motive is because you actually have one. Are there any new, I mean, it's almost like you can't win. Are there any tactics that PAF has developed when you negotiate with these people, in, and, and what is your success rate in actually convincing them to do the right thing? Well, um, our success rate with appeals and has been 98%, and we look at uh, a situation and we review the plan language entirely, and we look at the reason of denial, and we look at, you know, what are the needs behind the access or the treatment that's been prescribed. And with, um, with you know, with anything that's a rescinded policy and, and historically with anything before, even before reform and preexisting was a common denial, it's really important when anyone's applying for any type of insurance is to maintain you know, um, very truthful application. And then, of course, when we would ever have to go back to look at something like that, we have to look at the statistical facts of what they're trying to deny it on and basically try to prove that that's not a valid statement. And so there's a lot of um, that has to go in to review why exactly are they trying to rescind the plan. And, of course, like you said, I mean, there are circumstances where that could possibly be the, ch the point, and we would have to look at that case very specifically to see what are they trying to pull that for, and do they have a valid reason to rescind the policy? And I think that it's going to be tougher for insurance carriers to do that with some of the laws in play. But, of course, you know, there's always nature where you can be denied. And the best course I would suggest is that never accept an insurance decision. You always have the right to appeal, and you really should investigate that. Well, apparently they're full of crap 98% of the time if you have that sort of success rate. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of it is we're extremely knowledgeable and educated on the plan, and we understand what they're looking at. And so that's very helpful because for the most – for an, or an individual that has not had to deal with this before, it's a very big challenge for them to understand that some of the terminology, some of the um, reasoning behind what they're denying it for. And there's a lot of frustration that, that can associate around a, a denial, and some people simply give up. And we highly recommend that you don't do that and that you investigate it 
And, of course, you know, we're looking at the person as a whole. And so when someone comes in with one situation, we're trying to look at the entire and not fix, not put a Band-Aid on it, but fix the whole situation. You know, I, I love what you guys do. We refer people to you left and right. We get tons of traffic, and, and anyone that comes that needs advocacy, we send them directly to you guys. Uh, I've heard nothing but good things, again, because I've known Nancy for such a long time. I've, I've seen the power and the potency of what you guys do really, uh, you know, bring change to the system. Um, the fact that insurance companies expect people to exasperate as a strategy to get them out of their hair is ludicrous, and you guys really keep them accountable and, and encourage people to fight the fight. So thank you, thank you so much, much for being on the show. Please give my best to Nancy. Uh, I get down to D.C. quite often. I'd love to see you guys. So uh, good luck with everything. The Patient Advocate Foundation, Aaron Moratti, everybody. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. I can testify to what Erin uh, was saying about Patient Advocate uh, Foundation's efforts to put this information out in colleges and to graduate students. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was late, so I didn't get to look at the flyer and the poster that closely, but I was looking at the billboards in the middle of Drexel's campus, and I saw a, a poster that looked like a cartoonized college student leaping from one ravine to the next. and there was a gap and it had a little measurement and it was insurance coverage and I what was it 60 days you can't have a gap in coverage and right. obviously he wasn't going to make the jump because it was 60 days or something like that well Jason I remember uh, probably like a year ago you told me that you keep taking college courses in order to stay a student and stay you know have your coverage uh, you were able to keep your coverage because you were a student so you would you know, take a class until your next CAT scan, then you take a class until your next CAT scan. That's funny. Yeah, I know uh, I know a couple of uh, survivors who weren't going to go to grad school but decided to go to grad school and get their PhDs just so they could keep taking classes and stay on their parents' insurance. Well, there you go. So and on that note... Pay the hefty tuition to stay on. It's like, it's education... Uh, uh, educational avoid no, no you know what it is? it's pedagogical avoidance therapy there you go <laughs> how's that i just coined a new new syndrome in this country yeah. all right let's get to our uh let's get to our next guest here here's a good song for that all right i've known my next guest as equally long as i have the patient advocate foundation doctor mitch gallant is a health psychologist and has been with the cancer support community for 26 years. That's older than Jason, where he supervised and trained their clinical staff. He is recognized as a pioneer in the use of information technology in cancer care through the delivery of online support systems and is a contributing author to the Essentials of Psychosocial Oncology Handbook, The Psychiatric and Psychological Dimensions of Pediatric Cancer Symptom Management, Psycho-Oncology 2nd Edition, and the co-author of the Total Cancer Wellness Guide, which we have here in the office, Reclaiming Your Life After Cancer. Please welcome my friend, Dr. Mitch Gallant. Mitch. be with you. I like that ovation. Yes, it's, it's only for you and no one else. <laughs> I figured. How are you, my friend? Perfect in every way, and yourself? I am living in, in diaper duty. Okay. Yeah, congratulations. That's a that's a worthwhile endeavor. It <laughs> does change it. eventually. It's humbling but really meaningful. Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. 
I'm really excited to have you guys on the yeah. show. I've wanted you guys on the show for a while now. I know you just went through like a two-year transition. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that our constituents out there appreciate and understand the value of that transition because you guys are now lean, mean, and green. <laughs> that's a that's a fine observation. The the what what you're really alluding to now is the is the fact that the cancer support community is actually uh, joined forces with two groups, the wellness community and Gilda's Club, to really form the the largest uh, provider of psychological and emotional support for people with cancer throughout the U.S., if not the world, where we have 50 local affiliates, you know, uh, which are brick-and-mortar centers, but we have nearly 100 satellites, uh, locations, you know, around the globe and and online. And what that means is economies of scale. We have the opportunity now that we're reaching about 350,000 people with cancer in diverse settings. And we have a very robust uh, 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 interactive uh, website called uh, cancersupportcommunity.org. And we provide online support groups so people can get support and services almost any place that they live. And, again, tonight's show is about patient advocacy, and you probably heard me tell Aaron my personal definition is to make sure the next you doesn't have to go through the same crap that you went through. That's exactly what you guys do. Yeah, exactly. I I think the... Critical part. I mean, Aaron's work, as as you rightly pointed out, with the Patient Advocate Foundation, is is really about empowerment and access. And one of the pieces that the cancer support community provides is free education and support. And you know, information is power. Uh, information increases choice, and information is support. And we provide many different educational programs at not only at our local sites, but also online. And that often provides an opportunity for folks to be able to get the information they need and begin to make treatment decisions based upon sound medical advice. You know, Mitch, we were talking with um, Jason, our survivor, earlier and yeah. talking about how, you know, he's he goes out and tries to speak to um, young kids sometimes when he can, but he when he talks to parents, it can be a very touchy situation about, parents may or may not want a survivor to talk to their kids and how much does a parent want to know and how much do they get involved and do they what do they want to be told by an expert and what don't they want to be told because they feel like after all it is their kid can you sort of offer some advice or tell us about what you do in terms of um, parents of young adults and even when young adults are parents themselves yeah yeah so so it's it's a really a brilliant question and it gets at the heart of one of the incredible challenges families face when a young adult or a teenager or a child has cancer in the sense that for the teenager or young adult, they're, they're pushing towards independence. But by the very nature of the disease and the illness, they find themselves in a dependency situation. And so what that activates for parents is you could really understand a huge amount of protectiveness and what is actually the right balance. And that becomes at the heart of what support services, support groups can provide for both parents and families to be able to actually talk about these issues and to come to some sort of agreement, if you will. And it's not perfect because of the huge anxiety. Can you just imagine? I mean, Matt was just talking about his two children, you know, twins, for God's sakes. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me. I just forgot about that. Wait, hold on. Wait, when did Matt talk about his twins? (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I think I was I'm 
fracking, man. <laughs> on All Twitter the time, on... <laughs> 24 hours a day, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, uh, not to distract us, but, but really, our, 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 to, to link back to the critical issue, it is the fact that, that you know, our, our children for parents are our life's project. Yeah. And this tension, it's a human normal tension. There's not a right or a wrong, but that opportunity to, again, lean into the fact that that emotional support is a critical feature of quality cancer care. It's not just about the biology and the disease and the recovery and the, and the treatments, but it's about the emotional well-being as well, which was really highlighted, of course, in a number of reports, but in particular the Institute of Medicine report in 2007 called Cancer Care for the Whole Patient. It's just not about biology alone. It includes psychology. So it's a great question, so I hope I've illuminated a little bit. Well, is it typical for, as Jason was explaining to us, I mean, he sounds like an incredibly mature young man, as most of our survivors do, but him in particular. But he was saying that as, you know, the diagnosis at six, that he was, his um, sort of psychosocial counseling was very much as an adult, that, he, you know, all of a sudden he found himself, even at the tender age of six, in such an adult situation that he was, kind of dealt with by doctors and by the adults around him mm. as almost a fellow adult. Um, is that typical or is that just, well, it, you know, because they saw something in him where he could handle uh, being treated I, I, that I, way? Well, you, you, if you, uh, I've had a lot of opportunity to work with our colleagues at uh, Children's Hospital Los Angeles and a number of other uh, ch- um, ca- you know, cancer centers devoted specifically to children, but what, what might be really interesting to stay with uh, on that observation is that um, children, and this is based upon some of the data, children actually know what's happening to them. Yeah. Even although the parents are protective, the children know how they're doing. So there's this term called the unexpressed felt, and that children pick up pretty accurately what the experience is. And so it is not uncommon, in fact, for doctors to want to be more direct with kids about their experience because they don't want the children, uh, and maybe this is true for Jason in particular, to have some other fantasies about what's going on. They want to be rooted in fact. That's something only you could clarify because obviously there's a lot from my treatment that I don't remember. Yeah. And if I felt that way or if I knew what was going on, I probably, it it must have been subconscious. Hmm. It's really interesting. So now, Mitch, you know, obviously this is a show about the so what I call the lost generation, the okay. the, the young adults that mm-hmm. typically have not had a voice, where a completely you know uh, oft forgotten uh, lost generation in the conversation about cancer, and the fact that you know we're only six percent of all cancer diagnosis in this country, sixty-eight to seventy-one thousand or so. Right. Um, we have needs that are very disparate from an anthropological, a sociological perspective than the majority of Americans who get cancer in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Sure. You guys were early adopters at, at the wellness community and at Gilda's Club uh, to appreciate that this is a population that was grossly underserved. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know, programs like the Group Loop, which is celebrating, I think it's like its 14th birthday or something like that? Uh, or I might be wrong on that number. Yeah, but it, it, it's a great it, utility. Yeah, Group Loop began in 2004, but it it was designed to provide emotional support for teens in particular with cancer. 
And as you rightly pointed out, epidemiologically, that number is like a huge gap of only 60,000, 70,000 survivors. And the needs are huge, but the, they're, they're you know, really spread out across the country, if not the globe. And we developed this model of providing real-time, professionally facilitated online support groups for teens with cancer as a way for them to connect with each other and talk about their experiences. We also developed a, a model in which those teens could actually uh, join a, a discussion board that were moderated. Again, the experience for many parents in terms of their allowing or, or focusing on, on letting kids use the Internet at that particular time, and even currently, it needs to be safe. Well, we found a way of monitoring that, that so that every one of the teens who are in the online support groups actually has an affirmed diagnosis of cancer and that the actually discussion boards, the open discussion boards, are, are moderated. And in actually this year, uh, Group Loop is going through, uh, you know, what I would call a modernization or an update, and we'll really have more IM capacities, blogging capabilities, online surveys that are in real time, expanded profiles for, so teens can connect even more accurately with each other, and yet there would also be enhanced privacy settings so folks can decide for themselves what's the best way for them to use the site. So it will truly be a, a social networking experience as well as providing support. Mitch, talk more about um, you were saying that um, in the difference between what you do and what our prior guest Aaron did is that you really provide the information. So you are, you know, folks, first and foremost, um, come, for you, come to you uh, to find out. They can get the sort of filled in on the facts of their actual medical diagnosis right well let, let's yeah let's go slow so we get it clear sure. so, so one of the huge factors that increases anxiety for anyone diagnosed with cancer is are they getting good information that's useful mm-hmm. so there is a number of programs what we've developed called frankly speaking about cancer that are either diagnosis specific or they're more global in nature. For example, we have a program or a, a, one of these series called, book that's called, frankly speaking, about cancer uh, take control of medicine, mind, and body, which is really geared to managing side effects from treatment. We have another one that's focused on new discoveries in cancer, whereas we also have ones directly linked to breast cancer, advanced breast cancer, or le- leukemia, lymphomas. And so the idea here is that, that here... Uh, survivors can get information that's important to them and then be able to have a better conversation with their doctors and healthcare teams. So, and, and the way we do this, which is also interesting, is we invite doctors into our centers to deliver the information. Some of the lectures and information is available online and in a video clips. And so there's a way of actually accessing good information that can then serve for any interactions with their doctors. And do you work also with the medical community? I mean, I see on your website, too, when you have, for instance, partnering with your healthcare team, yeah. um, not only sort of informing the patient as to how to not just sit back and put yourself in a doctor's hands and sort of nod your head and accept everything, but do you work also with the medical community to say, hey, you know, this is, this is where you need to connect with patients better? Well, it, uh, absolutely. You know, if you if you talk to doctors, they they truly want the best for patients. They're under their own duress 
in yeah. terms of the uh, requirements of how many folks that they need to see in any given hour. Sure. And the value of an educational program is that informed patient brings to the doctor's visit great questions, which then allows the doctor to provide the information that's useful for them. It's truly interactive process. It's pilot and co-pilot. And, and if you ask any oncologist, they, they truly want the best for their patients. Yeah. And I want to I go back to the larger picture here, which is yeah. that traditionally nonprofit organizations typically raise money to give away. And, uh-huh. and you guys, with Harold Benjamin, even back in the 80s, uh, mm-hmm. really pioneered the idea of you don't give money away. You use that money to help people, direct patient services. Right. And the term psychosocial, you know, really didn't mean anything. It didn't exist. You, you really embodied what that meant and brought it into the mainstream with survivorship. But the thing that I, I personally taken the most out of being engaged with your organization for such a very, very long time is this notion of evidence-based psychosocial care. Mm-hmm. And there's so much, and again, I've, I've learned from your processes in I2Y, really follows by proxy to the leadership and, and, and the, the, the steps that you pioneered with this is how do you quantify the value that you bring to people mm-hmm. and, and what types of programs or surveys or how do you measure what you do? And, and that is the backbone behind your, your core philosophy. Everything is evidence-based. You know who you're helping and how you're helping them, and you're constantly improving upon those direct services. Yeah, yeah. That's a great observation, and the easiest way to focus on this, look, there are, you know, many people and many great, you know, organizations out there and, you know, who are providing wonderful services. As I articulated earlier, we're seeing nearly 350,000 people with cancer, and and their families, and and it's essential for us to be good stewards of those resources that have been, you know, provided to us. And the only way to be those good stewards is to actually begin to be willing to be scrutinized, to look at evidence that will outline at least to the world and to ourselves what we're doing really is quality care. And so we began to look at this in a number of different studies back in early mid 60s, 19, early mid 1990s, sorry, and, and really to look at, for to start with, the effectiveness of our face-to-face support groups. And we wanted to make sure that our support groups are providing the kinds of quality care that you'd expect from any uh, program and services. We, as a result of that particular study, we learned that our, our participants in our face-to-face support groups develop a new attitude towards their illness, make changes in their life that they think are important, they better access cancer-related information and resources, and, and they have a better relationship with their doctor. So from our perspective, we had data based upon a randomized clinical trial that our folks are getting some benefit by being in those support groups so we'll continue to provide them. We did a similar study on our Frankly Speaking series on, on side effect management, and those folks who are, attended that particular workshop, it was a two-and-a-half-hour workshop, those folks were, were had significant reductions in anxiety and significant increases in their likelihood to talk to their doctor about the information they learned. So it's not just about education, per se. There's evidence about them actually going to do something about that information. And the same we can true for our online support groups. So I can go on and on, 
about the value of evidence. But the point is, is that we can say to the world and to our patients and families that what we're providing really is quality care. I don't know how many parents I've talked to in the oncology floor who are about to go see the oncologist for their kid, and I would tell them, so what questions are you going to ask the doctor when he walks in the room? And they don't know what they're going to say. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so challenging. We've developed, and we've just been funded over the last several years by the Center for Disease Control to look at a program, what we call Open to Options, which is to help... uh, newly diagnosed patients to uh, generate a list of questions to their doctor that's based upon their own preferences, what's important to them. You know, so much of treatment is so complicated today. There's, of course, oral therapies and targeted therapies, but as you all know, that that some treatments, if you choose X treatment, you've been precluded to Y treatment. And so it's really important that the choices that you make early on in those treatments be based upon what's important to you in terms of what your own life is about, what your own interests are about, and, and, and uh, in order to have less this, what we call decisional regret. You know, the worst thinking. Yeah, sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. You can I, I, mean, I was just... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great conversation. Yeah, a little delay here. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, how do you, because I'm, I'm sort of constantly... Fascinated by this question and talking uh, advocacy in sort of broad strokes, how do you break through to either a parent or a patient, and we've talked a lot about parents on the show, so I'll, I'll say parents and then patients themselves, mm-hmm. to, again, that feeling of a parent who just um, maybe is frozen in fear, um, who doesn't want to, is just, you know, they don't have the questions, they almost don't want to know the questions to ask, they just, you know, you just want your kid to get better, or if it's you, you just want to get better, and you really, um, you know, being educated and having questions also at the same time opens you up to uh, knowing more scary stuff. Right. Um, what's the approach that you take to sort of break through that with, yeah. with parents and patients? Well, it's a great question because you just articulated, you know, uh, uh, individual style, preferences, yeah. Yeah. temperament. And for some of us, more information, the better. Throw it at us. For others, it needs to be in packets. And being able to have a conversation with, uh, you know, with someone who's skilled can allow you to get clarity on what's the best way that you can process information. Because you rightly pointed out, when someone's frozen, that that's a stress response. You've heard of fight and flight. Well, fight and flight also includes fight or flight also includes frozen when you're frightened to that extent. And that's a clue for you, the parent, or for anyone, any loved one, that that perhaps the information is too much, and then to figure out what's the best way for you to receive that information. That would be the process that would be meaningful. There's no right or wrong way, because we each cope differently. Yeah. And the, and the goal, of course, is to be able to identify what is the most effective way for you to cope with this particular event. And, and you know, look, cancer is just one event. When it's with our children, for God's sakes, it's really terrifying. And finding a way to lower that anxiety and distress and the trauma-like experience that that generates is a really important part of support. Being able to talk to others about your experience lowers your anxiety and distress. Just emotional expression itself. 
Yeah, so it really is an individual, it's a case-by-case case I, I think it's fair to say that, out of respect to everyone out there. Yeah. Well, we have time for one question from the chat room, and I guess oh, okay. this, this is a, it's an interesting question. In the rare case that you find individuals who are in denial of what they're going through and don't want to be involved in their treatment, do you find that they still somehow try to reach out, and if so, what would be some suggestions you might have for them? Yeah, yeah. So, so first, let, let's just be, uh, you know, respectful and appreciative of, of what denial looks like. First off, we'd have to start with managing the anxiety. Look, it's a coping mechanism. And so if we're not going to be able to address the denial, we have to get to the anxiety. And what are the fears? And you try to deconstruct the fears into its component parts and identify which is the most frightening. Is it death? Is it, is it a, a exquisite pain? And if it's deconstructed, then you can begin to design either interventions or suggestions that might help in, in uh, alleviating that. So, so the n- number one way to begin to look at that denial question is by addressing fears. If you can talk about your fears, look, if I said to you, I'm afraid I don't know how to get home tonight. Well, you'd come up with 12 answers on how I could get home, no matter where I was in the world. Google search, you know, girl, girl, you can name it. The same is true for this kinds of levels of denial or, or, or levels of anxiety. Well, again, that's just one of a billion questions the amazing yeah. team on your in your organization looks at every single day. We're out, of, we're out of time, but I think that it's incredibly relevant and necessary that we have you guys back on the show at least once a season. Um, it. It's imperative that our listenership know that your organization exists, that you do embrace the young adult movement. We have had dozens of partnerships with many of your local chapters around the country to collaborate on age-appropriate support programs, and we have not yet had an unsuccessful uh, opportunity. So it's a testament to the value that you guys are bringing to the cancer community, the voice you're giving to the voiceless, whether they're young adults or not. People don't sure. sometimes don't even know to know they can help themselves through the power of community. Yeah, great. That's We'd love it. And uh, the work you all are doing is terrific because it just increases in, some, in important, incredible ways this, uh, the needs out there. Well, Mitch, please uh, give my best to Kim. I haven't I will. seen her in a while. Um, and uh, when I, next time I'm down in D.C., I'd love to see you guys. Great, great. All right, Thanks good so luck. for having the opportunity Thanks. to share. Dr. Mitch Gallant from the Cancer Support Community. We have, a, we have I, a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour coming up in D.C. We do have a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour coming up in D.C., and we'll, we'll be sure to let them know if they have any access to the young adults down there. Uh, clearly, I think, one of the most articulate and intelligent guests we've ever had on the show. He's a good man. You mean Jason? Yes. <laughs> he wasn't and, uh, talking about me. No, we are not <laughs> talking about me, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, we're out of time. Um, next week's show is all about MD Anderson, so it's going to be a really, really intensive show about how they're changing the way that young adults are treated. Jason, going back to everything you talked about, about the transitions, they're doing that. So they're setting a new standard of care in how to work with uh, our population, whether they're long-term survivors. But uh, in any case... Uh, it is uh, now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. 
You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Special thanks to Jack Buffard, Lisa Bernhardt, my partners in crime here. We'd like to thank our guests, Aaron Moratti and Mitch Gallant, and our Survivor Spotlight, Jason Varunas, in-studio guest, Nicole Martin. Next week's show, as I said, is M.D. Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. In our Survivor Spotlight, Daphne Serrato, young adult survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, our good friend Marissa Meir, young adult survivor of colorectal cancer and the program coordinator for the Anderson Network. And Dr. Anna Franklin, medical director of the Adolescent and Young Adult Program at the Children's Cancer Center. If you've missed any of our previous shows, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or search for Stupid Cancer on the iTunes store. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live from the chemo deck. Jack Buford, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Stooping, and I wish you all a great week. Go to bed, Lindsay. Fucker out.